If you will please take your seats, we'll come to order. Can you all hear me in the back of the room? Good. Good morning, friends. My name is George, and I'm an alcoholic. And is everyone having a reasonably good time at this convention? I'll ask for a moment of silence in gratitude for the AA recoveries of the past 65 years. Thank you. Alcoholics Anonymous is a fellowship of men and women who share their experience, strength, and hope with each other that they may solve their common problem and help others to recover from alcoholism. <clears throat> the only requirement for membership is the desire to stop drinking. There are no dues or fees for AA membership. We are self-supporting through our own contributions. AA is not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organization, or institution. It does not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorses nor opposes any causes. Our primary purpose is to stay sober and help other alcoholics to achieve sobriety. I will now read the anonymity statement. Uh, there may be some here who are not familiar with our tradition of personal anonymity at the public level. Our public relations policy is based on attraction rather than promotion. We need always maintain personal anonymity at the level of press, radio, and films. Thus, we respectfully ask that AA speakers and AA members not be photographed videotaped or identified by full name on audio tapes and in published or broadcast reports of our meetings. The assurance of anonymity is essential in our efforts to help other problem drinkers who may wish to share our recovery program with us. And our tradition of anonymity reminds us that AA principles come before personalities. Uh, audio tapes of this meeting will be available at the tape sales booth. In keeping with our traditions of anonymity, tapes will list only names of meetings and not the names of speakers. It's now my pleasure to introduce the first speaker. I first heard, uh, first heard Bob at a past delegates luncheon at uh, the convention of uh, <laughs> New Orleans in 80. You know, this is... The Pioneers meeting, we're all getting a little old. <laughs> and he got up and said, uh, uh, my name is uh, Bob, and I'm a member of Al-Anon, and there was a hush uh, in the room, <laughs> wondering what are they having an Al-Anon speaker for at a past delegates uh, luncheon, and then he went on, and we all fell into spellbound silence, and you will shortly find out why. Bob. Thank you, George. What really happened was I was lured into that. They said, you're going to be a speaker at a little luncheon. <laughs> it was a past delegates. And when I got up and told them, my name is Bob S. and I'm an Al-Anon, you could hear the, oh, hell. 
What are you doing to us? <laughs> My name is Bob S., and I am an Al-Anon. I think I got here, like most of the Al-Anons, I love an alcoholic. My wife, Betty, who passed away two years ago, was a uh, good member of Alcoholics Anonymous for 19 years. And believe me, folks, for that I am truly grateful. <laughs> I think in the time that I have allocated to me today that perhaps you want to hear about the formation of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm the only one still living that was present when the two co-founders of Alcoholics Anonymous met for the very first time, home of Henrietta Cyberling, Akron, Ohio, Mother's Day, 1935. My dad's Dr. Bob and my mom's Ann, and I rode out with my parents to meet with Bill. <laughs> my dad had come home the night before Mother's Day with a potted plant, set it down. He was potted. <laughs> Went upstairs and passed out. My mom was a friend of Henrietta Cyberlings, and she called and said, Ann, there's a man out here that thinks he can help Bob. Bring him right on out. Mom had to explain that Bob was in no shape to talk to anybody. But she said, I'll get him out there the next day. And I rode out with Dad and Mom, and he had a terrible hangover. He said one of the worst he'd ever had in his life. And as we rode along, he said, Okay, 15 minutes of this bird is all I want. But it wasn't 15 minutes, folks. He and Bill went off by themselves in a room, and they talked for many hours. And as a result of that meeting, at my mom's invitation, I think the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous started. Think about this now. Uh, my mom didn't say, Bill, why don't you come over and have lunch with us next Tuesday? She said, Bill, come live with us. Yeah. <laughs> And that has to be some sort of a miracle. And I'll tell you something else. Remember, Bill lived in New York City, and we lived in Akron, Ohio. Bill said, okay. <laughs> How these things work, huh? I was, uh, I was a teenager at the time. I was 17 years old at the time, so I was kind of old enough to know what was going on. And... Uh, as near as I could tell, these two guys had two things going for them. They both had open spiritual minds, and they had the desire to be of service of another human being. And the first one I remember was a young guy by the name of Eddie R., and Eddie just been thrown out of his house for non-payment of rent. Remember, it's in the middle of the last Great Depression. So they moved him into our house, Eddie and his cute little blonde wife and two stair-step kids. Took Eddie upstairs and locked him in the bathroom up there where... He'd be available as they got this knowledge. <laughs> hey, folks, you got to remember, nothing's written. They're just trying to stay a page ahead of Eddie. <laughs> but Eddie was an agile young guy, and so he we had downspouts, and Eddie would slide down the downspouts, open the window and slide down the downspouts and escape. And... And they had to postpone Eddie's recovery long enough to recapture him. (laughs) 
One time, Eddie got as far away as Cleveland, Ohio, 35 miles, and called him up on the phone, collect, to let them know that he was going to commit suicide, but that he would give them time to drive up and witness the event. <laughs> Can you imagine a more inauspicious start to a wonderful movement? Anyway, when Eddie uh, sobered up, he had some other problems that hadn't immediately evidenced themselves. That he began uh, beating up on this little woman to whom he was married, and then he began chasing my mom around the house with a butcher knife. So we held a group conscience meeting. <laughs> and it was decided that the only thing to do with Eddie was for his little wife to take him back to Ann Arbor, Michigan, Recommit him in a mental institution, and of course, Bill and, and Dad were crestfallen. Here's their first attempt to sober up another alcoholic. Total failure. But I want to tell you folks something. At my dad's funeral 15 years later, a guy walked up to me and he said, Do you know me? And I said, Yeah, I know you. You're Eddie. And he said, That's right. And he said, I want you to know I'm a member of the Youngstown, Ohio AA group, and I've been sober one year. <laughs> So we don't know the result of that 12-step call. We're only called on to take that hand that reaches out for help. I think the results depend upon perhaps the zeal of the person receiving the message and perhaps the will of our Heavenly Father. But our part is to take that hand that reaches out for help. And believe you me, folks, we don't have to be fully qualified either. We go with what we have. I think you'll love my dad. Dad was a native Vermonter, tall, thin man with icy blue eyes that could kind of look right through you. He, he went along on kind of an even keel. Uh, not much to say, but what he said was, was meaningful. He was a graduate of Dartmouth, one of the Ivy League colleges back in the East, and uh, I think it was a drinker's Ivy League college, and he fit in there. And a couple of years later, he prevailed upon his dad, who was a district judge out there in St. Johnsbury, to send him to Chicago to go to medical school. And he busted out of one of them because his drinking was progressive like it always is, but somehow managed to graduate and obtain a coveted internship at City Hospital there in Akron. <clears throat> it was coveted because they had some advanced equipment. And he moved to Akron and married my mom after a whirlwind courtship of only 17 years. Dr. Bob thought things over very carefully. <laughs> he also had a beautiful sense of humor. When I brought my wife to be home in the 1940s, my, my Betty was tall and slender, and Dad looked her over. This was before we were going to be married. And he said, she's built for speed and light housekeeping. <laughs> And I want to tell you a sex and hygiene lecture to me as a teenager. He got me up in the bathroom one day and, and sat out on the edge of the tub, and I thought, oh, I'm going to find out all about it now. He said to me, flies spread disease. Keep yours buttoned. <laughs> Dr. Bob was a very courteous man. Uh, women felt comfortable around him because he so obviously loved my mom. He was uh, 
always stood up when a lady entered the room. You know, he had beautiful manners, and uh, everybody felt comfortable about him because he loved the slang of the day. I'm not talking. If Dr. Bauer were living right now, my dad, he would know all the the words that uh, you young people use. You know, like stroking and weirding out and stuff like that. Not the bad four-letter words, but those. He loved that language, even though he had a fabulous uh, vocabulary. Bill also, you know, was a native Vermonter. They were born within 100 miles of each other. Uh, Bill at East Dorset, my dad at St. Johnsbury. And you'd have loved Bill, too. I know some of you know Bill. But Bill was the exact opposite of my dad. Bill was careless. Bill was a visitor. Bill was a visionary. I think Bill Wilson could see further up the road than any human I've ever known in my life. <clears throat> Bill's mood swung. He was either high as a Georgia pine or low as a snake. But these two guys put, fit together perfectly, and I think this, again, was arranged by our Heavenly Father. They never had an argument. I've heard this said, I'm sure facetiously, that if Alcoholics Anonymous had been left up to Dr. Bob Smith, it'd still be in Ohio. <laughs> and if Alcoholics Anonymous had been left up to Bill Wilson, he'd have sold it to a franchise. <laughs> but anyway, somehow, can you imagine what it's like looking at it through my eyes? Knowing that in our little modest kitchen, and we lived in a very modest frame home, almost got thrown out of it for non-payment of the mortgage because it was a depression, these two guys couldn't have raised $50 between them. And to see it today, in my lifetime, gone from those two to what it is today all around the world and Al-Anon also, it has to have been guided by a, by a God that I call my Heavenly Father. Did you ever stop and think about some of the miracles of the program? Money. You know, Bill and, uh, and Dad were uh, broke. And they thought, oh, wouldn't it be great if we had some dough? We could really get treatment centers going, and I'm sure my dad could see himself in his white coat. <clears throat> Bill maybe out on the street flagging him in, you know. So they went to New York City and, and met with some people with very deep pockets. And Mr. Rockefeller and his group listened very intently, and they said, No, money will ruin it. That has to be a miracle, folks. Just imagine what would have happened if Mr. Rockefeller and his group had dumped a million bucks on a hundred broke alcoholics. <laughs> Do you think we'd be sitting here today? <laughs> Miracle. Anonymity. You know, in the early days of Alcoholics Anonymous, there were people with huge egos. <laughs> now, I know we don't have that anymore. <laughs> But you can't be Mr. A.A. or Mrs. Allen on him. Nobody knows what your name is. And it, what else that has done, folks, it doesn't make any difference if you've been here 40 days or 40 years. We're all exactly the same. And isn't that the way it should be? Miracle. 
And I can name many, many other ones, but uh, I want to tell you about a person that nobody knows much about, and that's my mom. My mom, Ann Smith, was a graduate of Wellesley, one of the fine women's colleges back in the East, and she went there on a scholarship. Her great-uncle was the president of the Santa Fe Railroad. In those days, the president of the railroad had his own private railroad car. It could tie onto trains wherever trains went, and he took a liking to my mom, and he took her around the country with him. So she had led a very sheltered, uh, genteel life. Uh, mom was a school teacher. Mom uh, was very easily shocked until AA. <coughs> but remember, this is the lady that said, Bill, come live with us. This is the lady that wrote to Lois, our beloved Alan, our co-founder. And Lois came down and stayed part of that summer with us, that first summer. But Lois had to get back to New York. She was the only one that had a job. <laughs> but it was a start of a friendship that uh, lasted until Lois passed away in recent years. But don't forget, Mom was the one that was making the bed. We were taking these guys in to our home because hospital beds were very expensive in those days. Those double was 16 bucks. I think they're up a little now, but uh, <coughs> nobody had any money, so they decided the thing to do was take them into our home and treat them there. Well, this was recovery, folks. My sister and I were both teenagers. Dad would take a new guy upstairs and, and say, now, fella, I'm going to give you a shot of whiskey, but I want you to take this little bit of medicine. And it was... Uh, it was uh, Braldehyde. Braldehyde's a very pungent sedative. And my sister and I, if we opened the front door and smelled Braldehyde, we knew we'd lost our bed. <laughs> but this is recovery. This was fun. I want to talk to you a little bit about recovery. I'm going on the basic premise that everyone here already knows how to be miserable. Okay, so let's talk about recovery. How did they do it? Bill in New York City and, and Dad and Mom in Akron, Ohio, belonged to an organization called the Oxford Group. Now, the Oxford Group was started by a Lutheran minister from Pennsylvania by the name of Frank Buckman. And the basic principles of it was back to first century spirituality. Those people had four absolutes that have been incorporated into our programs. Absolute honesty, absolute unselfishness, absolute purity of thought, and absolute love. I used to go to some of those meetings. They had meetings at people's homes. They shared with each other. They uh, did many, many things that we have incorporated into our programs. And I used to go to some of those meetings with my dad and mom. And probably, I don't really remember why, maybe to get out of the doghouse. You can't tell by looking at me, but I was not a constant source of joy to my parents. <laughs> But anyway, these people were, whoo, these zealots, they scared me. In your face, you know. Are you maximum today? Well, I was just barely minimum. <laughs> but anyway, and it was, and they had a form of, uh, of a confession. They used to take a new guy up in the bedroom of Henry Williams' house where they held these things and bore in on him until he admitted what his problem was. And they must have really worked them over. I can still see in my mind's eye the ashen face. So it was inevitable that uh, that they part. You know, actually, I think a new alcoholic is not absolutely absolute about anything. So it was a little bit too strong. And then they had this 
form of open confession which was not acceptable to people of the Catholic faith. I don't know whether you people realize it or not, but there are Catholics that drink. <laughs> but we owe those people a tremendous debt of gratitude. And another source, God's big book, 13th Corinthians, the Sermon on the Mountain, as you all know, the book of James, faith without works is dead. These were the tools that they had to incorporate. Also, what was used, they communicated with each other all the time. Remember, times were terrible. The rubber shops where we lived were down to two days a week. So they were on the phone with each other and visiting each other's homes. And uh, I think that was absolutely essential to formulate a problem, uh, you know, a program which would uh, hold together all these years. My mom died in 49, and I attended the first international in uh, Cleveland in 1950. My dad was terminally ill, and, and he knew it, and he gave a short talk there. But this is the first one, and this is the one where they adopted the 12 traditions. I am firmly convinced that these 12 traditions were the, are the glue that holds us together. You know, AA started to self-destruct about 42 and 45. And so the traditions were written, and they, uh, six guys got up, and each of them read two of them, and they adopted them unanimously. And I say thank God for those traditions. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Betty, my wife, and I drove my dad back to his beloved Vermont one more time, and I wouldn't take for the caring and sharing that we had as we rode along in the car and sat on the edge of the bed at night. But I I delivered him back to Akron, Ohio. I had a flying job out of Dallas at the time, and I had to get back to work. And I never saw my dad alive again, but this was a wonderful, wonderful time for me with this wonderful guy. Bill invited uh, Betty and I to the Second International in 1955. And this is the one where Bill turned AA over to the AAs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> also, this is the one where they acknowledged the spiritual leaders who had helped so much in this fledgling movement, like Dr. Sam Shoemaker from New York and Father Ed Dowling from St. Louis, Missouri, who had loved AA when AA wasn't cool. <laughs> and their talks are recorded, you know, in the... Uh, Chapter Religion looks at AA, and the book AA Comes of Age, if any of you are interested in Well, I could just go on with you for a long time, but we have some wonderful speakers waiting. And, uh, you know, I think that our programs, either one of them, are two things. Love, and we all know what love is. You know, if you can give that unconditional love, which asks for nothing, expects nothing. That's the love, I think, that we work towards. And then service. And service is where we get our happiness. You know, Dr. Albert Schweitzer, who is more of my generation, uh, a humanist, Dr. Schweitzer was a world-class organist who quit playing the organ and, and became an MD and then went down into the darkest Africa and foreign hospitals there. Did that all the balance of his life. Dr. Schweitzer said, I know not what your destiny may be, but this one thing I do know, that those among you who will find true happiness 
are those who have sought and found how to serve. And isn't that where our happiness lies? Thank you very much. employed at the General Service Office for a number of years and had some say about what went on in these meetings, but I'm retired or rotated, and I completely rotated, so I had nothing to do with who was chosen for this panel, but I am really grateful to my former colleagues for asking God to share with us today. <laughs> And I really didn't have anything to do with the uh, people chosen for this panel. However, the Jules P., who is scheduled to talk this morning, has been my sponsor for 43 years, which is four years longer than I have been sober. <laughs> uh, and he has a habit, if I am in the room or on the podium, of telling my drinking story rather than his own. However, uh, Thursday night in consultation with his uh, family in Los Angeles, Wednesday night, uh, we decided that uh, Jules had a little some health problems and it would be a little risky for him to make the trip. So uh, Jules uh, won't be with us. But I'm going to do something uh, that he might talk about anyway. Because, you know, people ask Jules, who's got 49 years, I think, now, uh, has AA changed? And he said, well, no, he doesn't, doesn't think it's changed. Except he said, in the old days, we were there for each other. And uh, I think myself, I see that we are still here for each other, in my groups in New York City. But I thought about one other aspect is that we had a little, in those days, the old timers understood that uh, the nature of alcoholics is to drink. And we, weren't, we didn't get so rattled by it. Uh, Jules and his wife, Nona, had a poker game going all oh, maybe 30 Saturday nights a year at their home. It was an AA poker game. And I was invited for every poker game. And they didn't say, don't come if you're not sober. And I wasn't always sober <laughs> when I showed up for the poker game. And I remember uh, on one occasion, it was raining very hard, pouring rain in Los Angeles. I showed up for the poker game. And I played poker for about 45 minutes, and then I said, I have to go out to the car to get some pipe tobacco. And I went out to the car in the pouring rain, and of course I had a little medicine out there, and I took a few pulls and went back in and played poker a little for a while longer. And after another period of time, I said, I have to go out to the car and get a cigar. Out to the car, it was raining even harder, pulls on my little bottle back in. By this time, my chair is sort of, there's a puddle in my chair because it's raining so hard. And the third time, I forget what my excuse was, but Nona, uh, Jules' wife, said to my sponsor, she said, Jules, why don't you tell, tell George to bring the bottle in and put it on the sink? He's going to catch... 
he's going to catch pneumonia. <laughs> and uh, to which Jules, who's a very wise man, said, No, he says, George is happier this way. <laughs> He thinks he's fooling me. <laughs> but I just, you know, I, I, I sometimes speculated whether you would find a, an AA, a bunch of AAs like this who would be able to tolerate to a, a, a member on a slip in the midst of their poker game with such total aplomb. Uh, so in my panic after deciding that it would not be wise for Jules to come, I asked two people almost simultaneously, two friends of mine with long-term sobriety and great quality of program, in my, at least in my opinion, uh, if they would substitute for Jules, they both said yes, they're both here. So in line with the democratic and the spiritual principle of uh, principles before personalities, we put both names in the hat, and neither one of them knows who's going to speak, and, and Bob is going to pull a name out of that. <laughs> Warren. Warren. <laughs> this is Warren, and I'm uh, Ralph's a great old friend of mine. But Warren is a local boy, and so I think it's very appropriate that he speak as a pioneer uh, with respect to AA in Minnesota. My name is Warren McGinley, and I'm an alcoholic. I got here by serving the usual apprenticeships that we all go through. Uh, those of you that are program, on the program now, uh, I drank for 20 years. Uh, for a while, it was okay. When you're young, you get away with a lot. They think you're just growing up and sowing your wild oats, and boy, I sure did. And... I think, you know, I thought I was drinking like everybody else, and I don't, I wasn't. Uh, I was drinking in bars when I was about 15. I was missing school in my junior and senior year in high school uh, because of hangovers. Uh, I thought maybe some of the other kids didn't drink as but they didn't have as much guts as I did to go in saloons and take a chance of getting kicked out. And, Then the war came along in 1941-42, and I joined the joined the army. And I thought that'd be a big kick, but it really wasn't. <laughs> my dad said I was I was running a little business for my father, and I was about 19 or 20. And he, he said, if they really need you, they'll come and get you. But I said, no, I have to go. And he said, well, I'm, my dad had lost his hand when he was a kid. And, I don't want to see you come home crippled or something. And I said, you know, at 21, you're indestructible. Nothing will ever happen to you. you know? I found out that wasn't right, among other things. I laid in the mud over in Italy a few times and thought, I might, maybe my old man was right. My God, I might not get out of here. And afterwards, I wondered why he, why he spared me and took a lot of nice young kids. They were younger than I was. They weren't all that much younger, but they weren't as experienced at drinking as I was. So we got through with that, and we got home. Uh, 
and we're big heroes then, whether we were or not. And uh, the drinks flowed, and behavior was accepted. And I had a girlfriend that I'd left and got together, and we're talking about marriage. And I remember telling her, we, you know, and later on, when I first sobered up and stuff, when people talked about uh, we were liars, we were con men, uh, were everything. We were all those things in a way, but, you know, when I told her stuff, like I told her, when we get married and have a, buy a, we'll buy a house and we'll have children and I'll slow down and I won't drink so much. And that wasn't a lie because I really thought that's what was going to happen when it didn't. What happened was we got married and we bought a house and we had a son and I kept on drinking and Jen stayed home and took care of the house and the boy. Not that I didn't ask her, I wanted to come along, but she just didn't want to come anymore. Her, her interests were other than mine. Uh, so I just traveled alone. I tried a couple times to get her to come with me. One time I promised her, if you go out with me, I'll only drink with you and as much as my mistake was, and as much as you do. And of course you know what happened. By 10 o'clock on Saturday night, she took a, she took a cab home, and I came home on Tuesday. <laughs> well, obviously, that didn't work. And that's the way things always went. I always got time. I remember I was drinking with her brother one time. We got pretty drunk, and his wife was downtown, and he picked up, got up and put his coat on and said, i got to go pick up my wife. And I said, you do? And he said, yeah. And I thought, my God, we're having a good time here. And I, you know, if Jen was downtown, I'd have picked her up on Tuesday too. You know? Other people weren't important once I got my nose in them. And of course, things started to go to pieces. I started having blackouts. Uh, I started changing jobs. Uh, I don't know about the rest of you, but I had to develop a kind of a sixth sense, and I knew when it was time to move before I got fired. Uh, like people are, nobody's, everybody's talking about you, but nobody's talking to you. Either a group of them talking, and you walk up, and they stop talking. And I knew there was something wrong, so I better get out of here. And that I got by with that. That's the only I can't say I didn't get fired. I can say I didn't get fired, but it was just because I was not the hell out of there. Uh, but everything, the blackouts were getting longer, and then it was on the wagon or or drunk. There's just nothing in between. It was a friend of the family's that my wife used to call that had quit drinking many, many years ago. And he had gone to a priest and taken the pledge and never took another drink. So his cure for this was to take the pledge. So Jen would call him, and I'd go to the church with him, and I'd take the pledge. I only took the pledge for three months. Uh, I don't want to get into that too long. And it seemed to calm everybody down. You know, Jen had calmed down. Everybody seemed to calm down. And I'd make the three months. And, of course, I'd get drunk right after it was over. And that went on. So one day a priest said, this is a ridiculous warning. <laughs> I either take it for five or ten years, and so I never went back to him. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, there was, it was like a border at the house. There was nothing left there. There was truly nothing left in the house. Uh, she called a priest, another priest over one Sunday morning. And... And, and kind of pointed up to me, and I never realized these things until I sobered up, that uh, people don't really understand us, and I don't understand them, you know. 
And I think we're the recipients of more misinformation than anybody on earth. You know, like, you know, pull up your socks and be a man and blah, blah, blah. This priest came over, and I'd been drunk the night before. And he talked to me. I, I, I don't think I lied to him. I said, yeah, I was drunk, and I drink too much. And uh, so we visited back and forth. And I said, I, I know I should read really something about I had to put the going to church and the confession and all that stuff. Because I felt like a hypocrite. I didn't blame the church. It wasn't there for And I quit going. The obvious answer is to put church, not quit drinking. <coughs> and so we talked for a while. And then he went out in the kitchen and talked to Jen for a while. And this was back in 1951, I guess, something like that. And he, I guess what he told her was that she probably made a bad deal, but she was stuck with me. There wasn't any divorce in the church that day. That might have been as close to leaving the church as Jen ever got. <laughs> but then he came back to me, and this was the advice. Warren, I think if you get more active in the church and pray more, things will be better. He never asked me to quit drinking. And I looked at him, and I thought, you're just like all the rest of them. You don't understand this. You know, you're talking about I pray more than you do. I'm in trouble all the time. <laughs> Today was a terrible place to be. And so he left. He was, so we went on and it was going worse and worse and worse. And uh, my sister preceded me in AA by about three or four years. And I really thought AA was a great thing for her. I supported her. So she, my wife asked her if she thought I was an alcoholic, and Vivian said, yeah, she's an alcoholic, but I don't think I'm the person to tell him. But I know a couple men that have talked to him and feel agree. So she asked me if I would uh, listen to these two men, uh, the people that came, and not insult them, not throw them out. And I don't know why, but I said, uh, yeah, I will. So these two men came, and I was 34, and one was 56, and one was 72. And they were both Irish. And after that, Jen thought it was a disease of the Irish. <laughs> but they came and they talked to me. <clears throat> they, they came in and they were, and this impressed me. They, they were neat and they were clean. And they seemed to be in control of their lives. And they sat down and they said, came here to talk about the disease of alcoholism. At any time you want us to leave, say so, and we will leave. Well, that's not threatening, so I said, okay. And then they told me about the disease of alcoholism, which to them was simply after you've taken one drink to no want to predict your thinking or your actions. And that fit me just fine. Uh, After that, I never had any more trouble with whether I was an alcoholic or not. Uh, The problem was I accepted it in a mental sense, I guess, but that didn't have anything to do with whether I was going to keep on drinking. I went to two or three meetings because I couldn't think of a good reason not to. Now, isn't it funny that family, church, everything else can talk to you? And you tell them to get out of your life and leave you alone. These two strangers come, and I couldn't think of an excuse not to go to a meeting. <coughs> Which causes problems in the house sometimes. The wife thinks, here, I've been trying to crazy. Stop this crazy man for years, and two strangers walk in. He doesn't drink anymore. 
I drank one more time. Anyway, I, uh, I think I went to two or three meetings. And I was impressed with them. And again, I, it was something intangible. They seemed to be in control of their lives. Uh, Pat Flanagan left town. He's dead for many years now. And he, I left AA because I couldn't think of a good excuse. So I left. And I had a plan. Now, that must have been plan 3000 or something. I was making plans about my drinking since I was 16 years old. I, uh, I had this plan of only drinking beer and only after dinner at night. Now, you can't get too crazy doing that. <laughs> the only trouble with it is it fills you up and it doesn't get you downtown. <laughs> and, of course, whiskey does. Ended up on about a five or six day drunk, just terrible, because all the things I'd heard in that short period, and the two men that had called on me, and it was like I thought, and they, I was doing everything they told me I'd do, and I didn't understand it. How could they know that? It's quite simple. No, they were drunks too. So that last night I drank. I remember coming home, the joint on the corner, and I went down there and drank came back and I sat on the back steps and I knew I had to do something because there was nothing left in the house whatsoever. And I thought, well, maybe I'll get an apartment. And I knew if I got an apartment, all any attempt at anything normal was gone. I thought, maybe I'll take vacation and get out and drunk. And I didn't know when I was going to get drunk. So the only answer was, I guess, to go back to A, which I did. All right. When I called Pat at two, two o'clock in the morning, you know, I don't know about nowadays. I'm like, boy, everybody, everybody called us at two in the morning. I guess when the lights go on and the fiddlers stop and we look for somebody to talk to, I called Pat and he came. And I lit the porch light because we were playing the house. And Jen was sitting on the couch and she said, "What are you lighting the light for?" And I said, "Pat's coming over." And she said, "He is." Said, yeah. He's crazier than you are. <laughs> that came, and I made a commitment not to drink until I saw him the next day. And uh, I called him at 8 o'clock. He said he'd go with me if I, if I called him and I'd get drinks while I was real sick. But I called him at 8 o'clock, and he said he couldn't come right then. He'd come in about an hour. Well, he didn't come in an hour. He came at 4.30 in the afternoon. By that time, I was completely numb. And he said, if I didn't drink it, I said, no. Then he said, you don't need any. You've got this thing enough. Okay. I found out sometimes it was healthy lying. Yeah. Well, you really watch those things. So anyway, I came back, and I didn't know if I could make it. I didn't know anything. I just knew that I had to try. I'd come back. I'd go to meetings. I'd ask for help. And I do what I'm told. You know, and as I've watched things over the years, most of the people that come and go to meetings, read the big book, see, and do what they're told, they seem to make it. You know? The ones that come in and start telling you how to change the group, and how to change the meetings, and how to change the program, are the ones that seem to have trouble. When a fellow comes in, and I've had this happen many times, I'm highly intelligent. No. That's a, that's a problem right there. <laughs> you have a 
hard time turning them around. Anyway, but it's been a it's been truly a great life for me. It's been a wonderful story. It's been and all I had to do, and I was angry and bitter and all the things and I knew all the other people that when I came back that time I realized that it didn't make any difference how much Joe and Pete and Harry were drinking. Warren was in trouble and I had to sober up. So I came and I I unfortunately had two sponsors that were really great guys, was Pat and Jim, the two men that called them. And they took me, we made calls, God, we at two o'clock in the morning, three o'clock, they dragged me around, they put on meetings in institutions. There weren't any treatment centers. <clears throat> I think in St. Minnesota there was there was Hazelden and Wilmer out west, and I wasn't much. So we had meetings were the big thing. But we called, we went out and did these meetings, Stillwater Prison. I was over about three months, and my sponsor took me down there, and I said, Well, what would I do down there? You're speaking. And he said, Well, that's right, I just want company. Talked about five minutes, and he said, I got a young guy here. <laughs> and there were 500 prisoners there. <laughs> and I wanted to kill him, but I got up, and I, don't, I didn't know what to say, and I don't know what I said. But you know what was important? Nobody laughed at me. Everybody listened, good or bad. And I found out that I would, didn't die. Before AA, if, unless I was drunk, I couldn't talk to more than one or two persons. Just couldn't. So I learned that I could talk some. But I made a lot of calls. And a lot of things. Uh, I made a lot of friends. That's what was great. That's what sponsor them from friends. Some of my people have been some one that just died a year ago. You know, it's over 38 years and he and I stuck together all these years. Uh, Lee and I have been friends for a long, long time. Uh, I've been fortunate. My life, my family life went together fine. Uh, things happened. We had things happen. We lost a baby after that. And that was okay. Almost lost her. You know what she said to me in the hospital when we didn't know whether she'd make it or not? She said, Warren, I was seven years. She said, Warren, I might I think I might, I might die. And I said, you still not very good, Jim. She said, I don't mind. She said, I'm not afraid. I know you'll take care of our son. And all, just, all I had to do was get that was stay sober. She was right. I wouldn't have been able to take care of him. So in seven years, she had that much trust. One of the things you get are things that you couldn't buy. The things that you get you never visualized would happen. You know. Many years later, she, ten years ago this month, she died of cancer. It was a long time, like three years. And the support I got from AA was unbelievable. Totally unbelievable. I sat in that room with her night after night and she couldn't sleep. Nothing to talk about anymore, really. And I thought, what a terrible, lonely place this to be if it was just her and I. And it wasn't a. It wasn't the friendship and love of me. It gave you the strength to go on and accept things. And the life has been good to me. Given to me, free. All I had to do was stop drinking, do the necessary thing. And accept the help. I wouldn't do that. I won't have to you. 
couldn't tell me anything. I have a priest friend that said to me one time, the Irish are poor lovers and great haters. And that's what I was before I came. <laughs> before I came to this one. I think he's right. So it's been a great road, great trip for me. All the things that I never thought would happen happened. Got nothing to do with success, got nothing to do with money. Just the friendship and the love. And I never have to be alone again, no matter where I go. And I was the loneliest man in St. Paul. Now I have all of you. I'll have more friends when I leave Sunday. Thank you so much for my life. Terrible Warren talk about people going out at 2 in the morning, which they did in the 12-step efforts. My first sponsor was a guy named Joe Q. Some of you from California probably know or remember Joe. He was the most compulsive 12-stepper I've ever seen. He thought it was a waste of time to go to a meeting unless you had two or three people in various states of detoxification <laughs> along with you. And my first service in AA was as a chauffeur. And uh, actually, I was an intern. We practiced medicine in the car, and I kept the bottle in the car. And uh, we'd be driving along, and Joe would say, uh, Pete here looks like he's really about ready to, he's in bad shape, pass the bottle back. So we'd pass the bottle back. He'd calm down a little bit, and then he'd say, you know, Harry is about 10 minutes away from a convulsion. We've got to stop by General Hospital and get him a shot of peraldehyde. And we'd do those things I was sober a year, and my car smelled—I hadn't had a drink. My car smelled like uh, urine, vomit, and peraldehyde. <laughs> but then I got drunk, you know. And uh, I, uh, Joe was just too busy twelve-stepping to listen to all my garbage when I came back, so I got another sponsor. Uh, I'm just going to say a couple more things. Uh, this morning I had uh, breakfast with some people from. Romania, Poland, Eastern Europe, uh, Korea, and countries around the world. It occurred to me that I, uh, Warren, Ralph, even uh, Ruth, are not really the pioneers. We're the first-generation children of the pioneers. But those of you who are walking around the convention, if you see people with badges that say Romania, Lithuania, Korea, you're going to meet and introduce yourself. You'll meet people who have only been sober a very few years. However, they are the real pioneers at this convention. Because they are building a fellowship and facing the problems that the pioneers here in the United States and Canada face. 60, 55, and 60 years ago. How many of you were in Jack Murphy Stadium on Saturday night uh, five years ago? <laughs> Some, somehow I suspected that would happen. 
for those, <laughs> for those of you who were not, uh, I had what seemed like a good idea at the time. <laughs> I have quite a few of those and uh, thought that for the old-timers meeting on Saturday night, we would conduct a lottery. And we asked that anyone who had 40 or more years of sobriety and who thought they could stand up and talk for five minutes in front of 40 or 50,000 people uh, put their names in this lottery. And we had a hat and we... Isadora co-chaired the meeting with me, and we pulled ten names out of the uh, hat. And the first name we picked was Ruth. And Ruth talked a little bit more than five minutes. <laughs> and I'm looking at nine other marvelous uh, old-timers there on the meeting, and Isadora is looking, what am I going to do? Finally, I said, give her the bell. So we gonged her, and I didn't know whether I was going to escape, escape alive <laughs> from, from the stadium. But the an interesting sidelight to that is that uh, after having gone through, uh, after the convention uh, at the office, we had all kinds of phone calls, wanting Ruth's phone number and so forth, and she was launched on a career as a circuit speaker. <laughs> So, so, Ruth, you have, uh, we have to clear the room by 10.25 or so. It's all yours. <laughs> oh, thank you, my friend. <laughs> given me a new life. <laughs> Hello, everyone. I love you all. You know, I was so afraid when I saw that stage in San Diego with the huge screens, you know, and the people's faces up on those screens. And I thought, oh, why the devil did I put my name in? <laughs> But once I stood up there and saw all you people, I love alcoholics. <laughs> I was on cloud nine. <laughs> Happy, joyous, and free. Thank God. <laughs> Now's the time to get back at him. <laughs> But, you know, when I celebrated my 50th anniversary, <laughs> I now have 52. <laughs> but on the occasion of my 50th, I heard from George. He just told me, don't go anyplace where they gone you. <laughs> He didn't know I was really afraid. They said they had a trap door. <laughs> Thank you so much. You know, I spent quite 
a two-year period after that San Diego thing because I've been to so many, <laughs> so many conventions and was in so many beautiful hotels. <laughs> I was three times in Nashville, <laughs> and I love it there. But anyway, I was trying to prepare something as a pioneer, <laughs> which you're calling us. And uh, believe me, I was the only woman in the group for a long time. The <laughs> The first time that I saw Bill, uh, we had, by word of mouth, you know, when I went to my first meeting, they told me that there was a meeting on the first Friday of every month in the Engineers Auditorium in, in New York. I'm a Bronx girl. <laughs> and so... I asked my husband if he would take me to that engineer's auditorium, and he said, well, okay. He said, have mom mind the children. That was my mother. And you can meet me downtown for dinner, and I'll take you to that meeting. So I met him, and it was a big night for me. We got to the engineer's auditorium, and I said, John, let's sit down front. He said, I haven't got a problem. Sit in the back. <laughs> so we did. We sat along the back. And much to his surprise, this tall, lanky gentleman came in and sat in the same room as I was in. I poked John in the sides and I said, That looks like Bill Weston. <laughs> he said, Oh, you would. <laughs> he thought I was going a little bit bonkers. <laughs> but anyway, it was Bill, and he got up and spoke. And he gave a great talk, and the whole, the whole hall, which was a big one, emptied out. Everybody was going up to, to shake his hand. And there were about, there were six women in all, and I was one of them. And we stood on the side. So as we came up, he spoke with us. He spoke with everybody, you know. And then more men would come, and one woman would come. But when I got up to him, he said, Oh, are you new? And I said, Almost three weeks. <laughs> and so he did what he did with the other ladies. He kissed me on the cheek. <laughs> And I didn't want to wash that spot. <laughs> he said to me, have you found a sponsor? Now, I had asked every woman I saw, you know, are you a member of this group? Oh, no. I'm writing a thesis on alcoholism. <laughs> oh, no. I'm here for my grandmother or somebody. I couldn't find one who said she was an alcoholic. But anyway, he did say to me then, make sure it's a woman. <laughs> that was his theory. Woman to woman and man to man. 
was one I had about three weeks. But my first closed meeting, I walked into this place, and little did I know it was a business meeting. So they had two tables and a man sitting at each one, and they were taking our information, you know. So there were about 22 fellows and me at this meeting. And they were lined up, you know. I had a man in front of me and a man behind me, you know, were walking up. And they asked me where I lived. And I gave them all the details. And then uh, he said to me, And how long have you been sober? I thought, here's where I can show these guys. I said, 50 days tomorrow. (laughs) So the guy behind me poked me in the back and said, 49, baby. admit they were right. <laughs> oh, yes, 49. But the, I have to tell, tell you an aside to that. When I came up two years ago for my 50th anniversary, so many people called me the night before and said, 49. <laughs> <laughs> But anyway, the following day, I had a knock on my door, and it was a fellow from my group, and he said to me, well, you'll know who he was. I said, how are you, Ruth? <laughs> and I said, okay. He said, are you sober? <laughs> that was Pat Murphy, Lord of Mercy. <laughs> he said, I have a 12-step call for you. So that was the beginning. That was what was wonderful when I look back on it. I didn't realize when I was going through it, but 12 step work, one on one, was what kept me alive. What? <laughs> When I came in, my oldest boy was six, the next boy was four, and I had an infant boy. We had called him Tony because we'd been trained to St. Anthony. Now I'll put another aside in here because those days they always used to say you had an AA baby. And on my fifth anniversary, I conceived the fourth son. I have four sons now. At any rate, I had this first 12-step call that I went on. Pat Murphy said, we can walk. She lives right over here. I knew the woman. She went to my church. She had a big family. And I'm walking across, you know, Bronx, New York, where I lived. (laughs) And I'm walking and thinking, Good Lord, everybody's going to know <laughs> Ruth Lang is an alcoholic. 
thought I thought that's what I bargained for. So I went to the door and uh, for this lady, and it was answered by her teenage son. And I said, hello, Kevin, I'd like to see your mother. And he said, oh, you can't. I said, she's sick, isn't she? And he said, yeah. yeah I said, I have the same illness. I'm an alcoholic. And when I said it, I thought the world stopped for an instant. <laughs> it was such an electrifying feeling. And I had been saying it that night, meetings and everything, but this was different. And so I was let in to see Mary. And she knew me, but she was a very sick gal, very sick. And Pat Murphy had gone to try to borrow a car. That was 1948, and hardly anyone had cars. <laughs> but Pat borrowed a car because she said, I think we'll have to take her to the hospital. And so... We were to take Mary to Knickerbocker Hospital. Now, my problem then was that I had to explain to her family, to her husband, that he had to pay $75 for five days in Knickerbocker Hospital. But the big thing that I had in my favor, I told him, she won't be thrown into a city hospital the way we all work. Previous to that, I said, she'll be treated as if she has a disease. It's entirely different, you know. And so I told them they couldn't communicate with her for five days, and she couldn't communicate with them. But she would be treated by Dr. Silkworth. <laughs> and... I, he didn't know who he was, of course, her husband. But he forked over 75 bucks, and I wouldn't have gotten her into the hospital if I didn't have the cash, because that, that was the story. No money orders, no checks. <laughs> they knew alcoholics. <laughs> the one stipulation was that I, as her sponsor would have to go to visit her and also see that I took her home, that I explained the program, that I got her a big book and set her on her way. She might not keep me as a sponsor, but at any rate, I felt that responsibility. Here was Mary. She was a little older than I, and she had all these children. And I was responsible for this woman. It was a terrific feeling. <laughs> but anyway, what do I want to tell you about? As I say, I was trying to think of pioneer. <laughs> what did I do? But the girls in the New York group told me in later years, in fact, I still have one of them, and heard her speak. I go to Florida in the winter now. And uh, Eva, when she was in the intergroup, she told me, she said, I had a sign under my phone on the wall and said, anyone calling for help from the Bronx 
call this number. <laughs> it was my number. <laughs> anyway, I was out with Tony, my little guy. He was then walking, and I was taking him on subways and buses, the L train, <laughs> all over. I had a girl who was over in uh, Parkchester, which is the other side of the Bronx, and I used to have to get to her before the liquor store opened. <laughs> So Tony would be dragged <laughs> onto the crosstown bus to get there in time. And then sometimes I took those girls back to my house because I had I had things to do at home. And I used to say, if you want to sit here all day, we can talk, and at least you won't be able to get a drink. <laughs> so some of them did have their first day of sobriety in my house. <laughs> Anyway, I am so happy for all of that, and I have made so many friends. You think I made friends after that San Diego deal? <laughs> but I made a lot of friends back then when I was in the Bronx. It was wonderful. And sometimes Tony would come home with a present. You know, a big jar of duffies or a turtle. <laughs> you never knew what he was going to get. But anyway, I do want to tell you that Bill Wilson and Lois came to my meeting often. And in Lois's book, Lois Remembers, she mentions a couple of fellows that were in my group. So I feel that's why we have the pleasure of their company so often. Alanon hadn't begun yet. <laughs> and so uh, Lois used to say, well, if you ladies would like to come into this other room, we'll talk. Well, there were ladies there. They were sisters, wives, you know, mothers of the alcoholic. And one drunk, me. <laughs> and we'd all walk in. I love to hear Lois talk. She was quite a gal. In fact, when I saw her in Montreal, I burst into tears because in my day, Lois was a strong woman. <laughs> she looked like a 4-H kid grown up. <laughs> she was very athletic. And, you know, I had asked her, when you took that motorcycle trip, did you use that little cab on the side? And she said, we did not. We used that for our books and clothing. I drove and did drove. <laughs> That's for those bikers <laughs> that I see all around. But anyway, I love seeing all of you. <laughs> it's wonderful. And this place, isn't it great, Minnesota? <laughs> I had a very poor winter. I, I had something that's it's a well-known injury on, on the shoulder. And I, in 1948, I was 
operating salon for it. And then last winter, I had to be reoperated. I have a rebuilt shoulder again. <laughs> but the strange thing is that they don't even want me to take therapy because of this crazy thing that's working itself back into the point where it has to be operated on again. <laughs> so I'm happy to have gotten here. I was sick. I ha I'll tell you this story. <laughs> whether it's pioneer or not. <laughs> this past winter, my four sons got together, and they formed a little fund for four mangans. That was my name before. And one only of me. <laughs> and they hired a lady to take care of me. A Lithuanian lady. And I met her for the first time when I was sent home from uh, from Florida in October. October 8th, I met this girl, and uh, she was there for one day. The next day, she had to go someplace, and I had a substitute lady to take care of me. But when the original one came back, I had a definite smell of alcohol when she came in. So it turns out I got an alcoholic to take care of me. <laughs> A lot of my AA friends and other friends said, dismiss her. She's supposed to take care of you. <laughs> well, I couldn't. In fact, everybody who knows me got a laugh out of it that my gal to take care of me happened to be an alcoholic. But thank God we survived. She got her 90-day pin. <laughs> Worst of all, she had a DWI. And I... I helped her with that because that costs an awful lot of money these days. <laughs> but anyway, this is my life, it seems. You know, God has a sense of humor. He sent me an alcoholic to take care of me. <laughs> I don't know what else to say to you. I love you all so much. You're my life. <laughs> and I want to thank our tour director, <laughs> Stan, you know, like all those jokes about the Polish people. <laughs> we got a great one in Stan. <laughs> He's really taking us on the whirlwind vacation. It's a form of 12-step work to me. You know, as we heard from our priest the other night, it said, you know, Jesus had a sense of humor, and he smiled, he said. <laughs> I'm sure he did. I feel so grateful to have each day <laughs> mean so much, you know. I'll just quote from, you know, that little thing you were talking about, the four absolutes. Uh, I had a little card that had the four absolutes on it. And on the back of it, it said, Thank you, God, for another day, the chance to live in a decent way, 
to feel again the joy of living and happiness that comes from giving. <laughs> Thank you for the friends who can understand and the peace that flows from your loving hand. Help me to wake with the morning sun, with the prayer, Today thy will be done. For with your help, I'll find the way. Thank you again, dear Lord, for AA. <laughs> Thank you. instructions <laughs> I really want to thank uh, I guess Valerie O of the General Service Office for asking me to moderate a panel with these folks on it Unbelievable experience. Well, we're going to have another old timers meeting tomorrow night. I guess uh, we're going to have to do it in lottery style, like we did last Saturday. And and I want to see whether Greg has courage enough to gong somebody like. Her. <laughs> uh, please don't linger in the room too long. There's another meeting that begins at 11 and. Uh, those people will want to come in unless you're going to stay for the next meeting. I want to again thank the speakers. You were all just wonderful. And Ralph, thank you for sitting up here. <laughs> and Ruth, after a moment's silence, if you come up. Please join me, those who care to, in our serenity prayer. God, grant, grant me serenity. things I cannot change. Those are the things that can.